folks. Uh, season eight of Mentioned and Dispatches is rumbling along, and we've got our first non-Dragoons guests with us tonight. Uh, th- this is another one of those podcasts that's going to take a turn off into the professional and practitioner world of wargaming, which is an area, as you know, that, that the Armchair Dragoons try to cross over into quite a bit. It's not necessarily a core part of the hobby wargaming world, but we think there's a lot that both sides can learn from each other, and we want to continue to encourage that. So much like our sponsorship of the upcoming Connections Online Conference, we're not going to shy away from those professional and practitioner folks. And tonight, we've got a pair of folks that have never been with us on Mention and Dispatches before, but both work in that national security world. And so we've got Justin and Gino, who are both here from the Center for Naval Analysis. These guys are from CNA. Some of y'all will remember Sebastian Bay from previous podcasts um, talking about Georgetown University Wargaming Society. He is a colleague of theirs over at CNA, and he that that's his day job, not Georgetown. And so he helped set this up. We've got both Justin and Gino here tonight to talk to us about uh, what they do at CNA, how they got to CNA, the kinds of skills that matter uh, for the professional practitioner world, uh, some of the process they go through in developing those professional and practitioner war games, and, uh, and and who knows what else we're going to stumble across as a part of this this podcast. So with all of that, uh, Gino, let's start with you just a quick short synopsis of some of your wargaming background and how you ended up at CNA. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I initially started uh, as a hobby gamer. Um, started out real young with my parents playing games like Risk, uh, Axis and Allies, which your listeners will not be able to see, but it's on my shelf behind me. Um, <laughs> and I quickly realized that I enjoyed uh, the nuances of a more detailed game. So I eventually got into um, developing miniatures games with friends and then uh during the height of covid back in 2020 uh, i do I designed and made a rule book for a variation of flames of war um okay. world war ii tactical level miniatures game uh and the reason that we did that was we had an issue where whenever we were playing miniatures uh there was very little math that goes into discussing armor overmatch issues between a tiger and a sherman so uh fast forward a little bit graduated from grad school and was looking for jobs uh and uh, a mentor of mine recommended i look at cna i uh applied for the job realized during the interview process that i was actually going to be joining well not during the interview process but afterwards i was going to be joining the wargaming team and uh that sort of just took flight from there it's uh kind of interesting because as someone who has a policy background in national security rather than Um, some of my other colleagues that are a little bit more STEM focused, it was an interesting transition to uh, applied techniques of looking at how war games can be employed and how data can be collected and then conveyed to uh, key national security individuals. Gotcha. So, so the academic background is is in the policy, almost more of a social science world, and the gaming piece comes from personal interest that you just happen to find a good match for both. Exactly. Okay. No, no, very cool. Um, Justin, so you've been at CNA a little longer here. <laughs> Was it intentional that you ended up in the wargaming team or did, like many other folks, did you sort of accidentally back into it? <laughs> so uh, as one of the STEM-focused folks that, that Gino mentioned, uh, my, my background's a PhD in mathematics. Um, I was a, I, I, I played a lot of games in my downtime, we'll say that. Um, I, I don't have games sitting behind me right now. They're, they're all in the office because we have limited space due to the baby. 
Uh, so I get less gaming done at home. But I, I was a traditional hobby gamer as well, studied mathematics, and uh, and actually was a professor for a couple of years before coming to CNA. When I interviewed at CNA, uh, one of my friends had reached out and said, hey, I know you're looking for a job. If you don't want to do the typical academic thing, this might be a good place for you. During my interview, I uh, I did talk to Ed McGrady, um, who, who at the time was leading the the war game or the gaming and, and integration program here at CNA, um, and and things just kind of went from there. So I actually started at CNA doing uh, work on cybersecurity. And then through a set of circumstances, switched over to doing wargaming. And I've been doing that for uh, about uh, full time for about five years. Prior to that, I contributed to some some games as a new analyst, just kind of learning the ropes. So also a non-traditional path um, coming out of my hobby background. But the, the fact that I was both a professor and I focused on the STEM stuff got me got my foot in the door. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you hear people talk about a non-traditional path to something in the professional wargaming world. I'm really curious to know what that traditional path is supposed to look like, because because I don't know of anybody that's been on one. Like, literally everyone you talk to in the professional wargaming world, well, I didn't get here like everybody else. Well, nobody got there like everybody else did. Like, everyone's got a story of one, don't they? Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I, I think it's it's always enjoyable to to get asked you know well how do I how do I do wargaming as a career and and my response is uh, well be smart uh, have some good analysis and hope for the best yeah I also think creative is an important factor in that you really have to think outside the box to really employ games in a professional setting which is something that I have learned to enjoy yeah yeah. Justin, just out of curiosity, you, you may have a better grasp of this just from having been at CNA a little longer. What's the rough head count? What's the rough population of folks at CNA that are primarily focused on the wargaming world there? Is it is it a dozen? Is it 50? Is it three? <laughs> I, oh, boy. Uh, math in public. So so let's see. <laughs> just, just quickly off the top of my head, I think our... Our gaming team, the core team is like eight people, uh, roughly. Um, and then we've got we've got a whole bunch of other folks that uh, support uh, either with subject matter expertise or like part of their time is devoted. But but we're a fairly small group, um, you know, in a, in a company of, of more than 600 folks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't think it was huge, but I, I wasn't sure how big it was and just trying to give the audience a sense of what size that that team looks like. And, and obviously you guys, like you mentioned, subject matter experts from other parts of the organization, you may pull in as needed for whatever game it is you're working on. Uh, and, and if you got to go draft help, hey, we need an extra three people to help run the white cell for this exercise right you've probably got an on-call list there in the organization that you can grab don't you yeah yeah we we've got uh folks that we can uh we can kind of on call and, and they're subject matter experts on on paul mill issues or specific to to, to uh, gino's example specific tactical issues that are relevant for our games yeah no that's uh that's interesting. I, Gino, with you being a little closer to coming out of school and then going into the workforce, was there anything in particular in your academic background that you found has been 
particularly helpful or especially helpful in the work you're doing today? Or is it more just kind of evenly spread across what you've done? So not particularly from my academic background, but there are things that classes and uh, skills courses that I took throughout undergrad and grad school that have really um, been helpful in a lot of different uh, situations where uh, coding is needed or uh, certain software like ArcGIS, obviously we have to make maps. Um, And just a little bit more of the um, research skills. I mean, it's something that every academic institution stresses is good research chops is a good thing to have. Um, as Hichi mentioned, uh, like analytical prowess is something you really need to uh, both practice, but also you have to be taught in a way how to think um, in a war game. Um, which is different from an academic setting, but it's also important to understand how to be uh, academically analytical. Yeah, yeah. I, Justin, from from your academic background, I imagine the the math skills, some of the uh, the number crunching, has probably proven at least a little useful along the way. But what are some other things you can think of in in your background, and particularly on the academic side, that might have lent themselves toward your success there at CNA? Sure. Um, so I'm right. I have to, I have to nod at the, the math stuff and the, the game theory course and all of that, that, you know what, I don't actually use as much as you would think, but what I really do use, um, a lot more is actually from my undergrad. So I have both a a math degree and an education certification. Um, so I, I was certified to teach high school. I did all the education courses and thinking through, information, uh, how you want to communicate certain aspects of your game or, or run a room, um, all of that really matters. And, and I probably use that more than my, my math, uh, portion, um, at this point, just because there's a lot of pairing the, the hard STEM skills with the soft people skills that, that, uh, it's definitely different than traditional analysis. Obviously, C- so CNA is a it's a government funded think tank that tackles projects for different people throughout the government. Uh, I I think, although I don't know this for sure, you guys do have some commercial clients on occasion, don't you? Or is it all government work? So CNA has uh, the, the corporation has two sides. So there's the the federally funded research and development center side, which is where Gino and I sit. And that's going to be mostly DOD. Um, and then there's the other side that's the Institute for Public Research okay. that's going to be doing a lot more work with state governments, potentially you know, private foundations. Uh, I can think of some examples recently. Uh, so it's it's a little bit more open um, kind of on the – I don't want to call it client list, but, but sponsor yeah. list on that side. Yeah. And, and I don't want you anybody in, in any kind of trouble trying to expose the client list or anything. I just trying to help the audience understand who the kind of people are that are knocking on your door saying, Hey, we need help with something here. Um, so, so when we take a look at some of the kinds of projects that CNA might take on, on behalf of their clients uh, over in the DOD space, this is probably not some platoon leader, company commander, you know, some some lower level captain and below knocking on the door saying, hey, and I, I need help training my guys. These are much higher level, much broader scope kinds of games generally that CNA is is being tasked for. Uh, Justin, am I on the right track there? Yeah, you're, you're definitely on the right track. So think commands that may have to fight a war or support a war fight or maybe planning for for some large 
issue. So, so this is generally it's focused on most of our games focus on the analytic side of wargaming, looking at you know, hey, what insights can we gain to to shape the future, as opposed to training someone up to do their their day job. That's not to say we don't do some of those training things, but even even those training games are going to be for. Uh, fairly high level command. Yeah, and and just so we're clear for the audience's perspective here, we're not trying to obliquely tap dance around current events right now either. Look, the, the Russians are massing on the Ukrainian border. We're not talking about a Russia-Ukraine war game here specifically at all. We're talking about over the course of you know several decades of CNA doing wargaming stuff. We're, we're covering some pretty broad strokes, so please don't take anything we're talking about specifically and try and apply it to to a, a very very micro-focused current event kind of thing. Um, I want to make sure the audience isn't doing that because I don't think that's at all what any of the three of us are intending in, in any of this discussion here. I've written about this before on the site. Uh, we've talked about it some on other podcasts as well as some pr- presentations at places like Connections. Like, there's a bunch of different kinds of uses for war games. You, you know, we mentioned the training piece. We mentioned the analytical piece. Sometimes you're comparing or analyzing courses of action. Sometimes you're rehearsing something. Sometimes you're trying to build interest in in a topic. Sometimes it's an evaluation event, right? It's it's not just a training piece. It's the capstone to the training piece that we're actually evaluating how well you perform in these war games. When we talk about analytical war games, one descriptor that I've heard is sort of creating an alternate or, or a potential future history that you can mine for some lessons. Uh, obviously, in an analytical sense, you could run it multiple times and look for different trends or patterns. Um, Within that analytical wargaming world, what are some of the key things that matter to you guys at CNA and that you try to convey to your to your sponsors, to your clients, if you will, as a part of that analytical wargaming process? Um, Justin, we'll start with you and then we'll let Gino jump in there as well. Um, sure. <laughs> run with that. <laughs> sure. So, so I think there are a couple of key things that we're trying to communicate to our sponsors. Um, I'll start off with, yeah, in an ideal world, you'd run a game multiple times. That's just generally not, not feasible, right? We're, we're, we're doing things and, and it's a, I need an answer yesterday type of problem. Um, so I I think the biggest thing we try to communicate is war games are not going to get you a solution or, or the solution. They're going to let you explore, um, like you said, kind of a, a potential future history and look at that and, and grab insights. Um, you're, you're not going to necessarily be able to say, I need to buy X amount of, of like system or platform, but you, you'll be able to see the effects of your decisions. Um, if, if this is a traditional war game where I've got two or more sides, uh, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm a player, I'm making a decision. I'm, I'm playing the role of a potentially a future commander and and I make what I think is the best decision given the construct of the game, and I get to see what the feedback is there. And there's there's a lot of great tools for hey, I can go out and model something. I can see how a a system works, um, or I can go out and run an exercise and see how you know people moving around actually works. But what what those don't answer is if I make these types of decisions, what's the outcome, and what should I be be prepared to think about next and that's what wargaming provides to you and that's what we try to communicate to our sponsors gino did i did i miss anything given that we've just uh you know really hit you with uh you have to you have to say all of this to sponsors in the last year 
No, I, I, I think you hit it on the head. I think that in a short word, in a short sentence, it's fair to say that we stress test ideas in our games. Um, we take future concepts or current concepts of uh, operating in uh, the world in a variety of different situations, and we basically uh, tell the sponsor, frankly, um, through a game, or we show the sponsor in a game, maybe not us specifically, but some of our subject matter experts, uh, where there may be uh, pitfalls and allow them to sort of formulate their ideas of how to address those. Yeah, yeah. So obviously multiple runs through things can be impractical, particularly for the manpower constraints. You only get access to some of the players so much for so long. Have you had an opportunity to, to, to do one through multiple iterations? at all justin is that something that's that's happened to you in the last couple of years um so yes <laughs> yes it, it happens rarely but it is great to see and and there what you can see kind of from from game to game if you have the same players which is what you strive for um is is that players on all sides are learning um you know hey i tried this thing in in game two and it didn't work or it was very successful, you know, my, my opponent did something to me. It was very successful. I need to go back and think about how I could counter that. And that's the, that really is the power of the, the iterated games. But, but like you said, we don't get to do that very often. And it's, it's just hard to get time with the requisite number of players. Gino, you see what you have to look forward to? It's all one shot, fire and forget stuff, man. That's <laughs> Yep. <laughs> When you're looking at some of these bigger projects, well, I mean, I guess they're pretty much all bigger projects relative to the hobby war game world. But when one of these things comes in, thinking about some of the the normal, I, again, I say normal knowing that there's no one normal answer, right? But more often than not, when someone comes to CNA and says, hey, I need a war game exploring X, Y, or Z topic. What's some of the internal process that you guys go through in researching the topic itself and then trying to identify the best tools and mechanisms within the game design? design to help find those answers for that sponsor. I, Gina, let's start with you on this one. You know, as, as you're doing some of that research, as you're starting to build these things and put the idea together, what does that actual process look like for you if someone was going to outline your workflow? So I think it's fair to say um, you initially start with a standard lit review, like a literature review, mm -hmm. um, sort of get yourself at least up to the speed limit of the discussion. Uh, you're definitely not going to become an expert in the time period that... Um, the game is going to be run. But from there, uh, there's obviously a whole world of design uh, facets that you have to address in order to get a game. But in terms of the analytical um, structure of the game itself, you also have to consider the fact that the sponsor has certain... Um, expectations of what they want to either learn or uh, data they want to gather from the game itself. And you sort of have to structure it around that. Um, Just real quick, when you're talking the literature review, again, folks with an academic bent will understand what that literature review looks like, but you're talking about the literature review to understand the situation that the sponsor is exploring. You're not talking about a literature review of gaming tools and techniques and correct. analytical yes. processes. Correct. So, so we're doing something on... Chinese fishing boats in the Pacific Ocean, like you're you're looking for information on that topic, not game stuff that you can bend to that topic. Correct. And I think 
um, as someone who is not a um, does not have any expertise in emergency response. Um, if I was look as an example, if I was looking at something that is uh, trying to look for how to respond to a massive earthquake somewhere mm. in the world. Um, First, I would have to understand, well, what do I need in terms of uh, emergency response facilities or uh, units? But then you'd also have to understand uh, how that is actually structured. So you, have to, you actually have to understand not only the way the units operate in their jobs, but you also have to understand uh, the broader scope of it. So you sort of have to get read up a little bit on um, whatever topic you're getting yourself buried in. Uh, granted, you're not going to become an expert. Yeah. When you're doing that, how much of that is just... You mentioned the lit review, like you're going to bury yourself in the readings that you can find to to learn as much as you can from that. How, how much or how often do you get the opportunity to go talk to a subject matter expert in the field? How often do you get to go talk to somebody out in California who's used to responding to earthquakes or somebody from the Red Cross or, or whoever it might be that has that kind of knowledge? Obviously, if there's somebody inside CNA that's got some of that, you would want to take advantage of that. But but how often do you get a chance to go knock on doors and say, tell me all about this? So I'm, I have not had that opportunity, but um, just given the breadth of knowledge within CNA and the people who know people who have done these sorts of jobs in the real world, uh, there's a whole network that exists for us to gather that information and really make a credible uh, game out of that. So uh, it's hard for me to say because I've not been in that position, uh, but I have talked to colleagues of mine who have actually utilized that network for whether it's games or other reports. If you're doing an earthquake response, go get a copy of Aftershock from Rex Brynan, because uh, that's exactly what that game's on. So, uh, all right. So we, we've got a lit review. We've got the sponsor's requests and requirements, right? This is what I need to know or I need to get out of this. We may have some constraints the sponsor throws at us, right? I, I've got a certain budget or a certain amount of time or these kinds of assets might be off the table as a part of that. W where do you go from there in terms of putting this together? So a lot of it comes down to certain members of our team who are extremely knowledgeable about game design. Um, and a lot of that is a sort of iterative 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 uh, process of sort of trial and error mm -hmm. uh, what what mechanics can we employ to sort of get at these questions that our sponsor wants us to talk about or explore and we use things like play tests or um, internal I already used the word stress testing but it is still applicable mm -hmm. um, to sort of poke holes I guess is the best way to put it into our design and also our mechanics specifically. Yeah, better you guys find them than the uh, than the client find them. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so the you you sort of hit on one of the questions that I was going to get to, which is internal playtesting, right? At, at some point, you've got this design, you think you've got a good idea. Do you just like go to the lunchroom and go, all right, I need a half a dozen folks this afternoon who wants to come play a game? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with our group, no one's going to say no to playing some games. So yeah. it's it's a great place to uh, really be creative, but also have that analytic rig rigor um, that is required. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> it, it sounds a little flippant, but I could absolutely see that being the way to go that you know hey guys I, I should be done with this design by Thursday afternoon let's block off four hours in this conference room and go sit down and I, obviously things are a little different right now with the plague still out here that you may not be putting everybody in a conference room but yeah 
under under non-plague circumstances <laughs> yeah and i mean justin can attest to this uh we are professional gamers but we also still play games in our free time and we have had many time like many a time where we all just meet up on uh digital platforms to do virtual happy hours and play uh, a variety of different games yeah yeah it's one of those things of all right we're we're gonna do this for work but oh by the way let's plug the xbox into the conference rooms and get a four-player halo game going where we uh you know exactly <laughs> bit of bit of a shoot 'em up there so once we've got the the play test reasonably built out that that we're confident we've got something for the sponsor what does the package look like that you take over to the sponsor we're, we print maps we throwing maps up on a screen are we printing briefing packets do we have a bunch of our own cna people who are acting as certain roles in this whole thing how, how do you actually take the game to the sponsor and say all right let's play so so it's it's a little different with the pandemic a lot there is obviously uh, yeah yeah understood. there's yeah the, the the virtual environment has been a it's, it's a pain been, in the ass yeah you can say it's a pain <laughs> in the ass right we don't need to sugarcoat it we all know it's a pain in the ass yeah it know? sucks it sucks but a lot of the times it is um maps with wooden blocks um like sort of i mean you could really any game that you've ever played that has uh one inch blocks with stickers on it it's sometimes it's like that um justin may have uh games in his past at cna that take a different format and sometimes that is actually the way it works sometimes it's purely a discussion-based uh war game um (laughs) but it is still it is you're still gaming it out um but i think it's really important to realize that not there isn't one uh structure that really works the best for every problem so you really have to decide both your design and the mechanics they're they're equally important whenever you're trying to answer the problems that you're trying to answer yeah yeah so justin that's some of you know the the process that gino has seen uh what tweaks or alterations or variations on the theme have you seen in your time there at cna sure so uh, i think the first thing um uh, there, there are a couple things but i think the first thing that, that i want to touch on is um my my experience i think the 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 biggest tweak is actually right there at the beginning because a sponsor comes and says hey i want to do x y and z and uh through some trial and error and experience one of the things that uh, i've realized and um it kind of is is actually the biggest hurdle is the sponsor often thinks they know what they want and spending the extra time two, three weeks a month to sit down and actually probe that and get buy-in on on what we're planning to do is one of the most important things we can do. I would rather take risk and potentially reduce some of the time I have to play test if it means I can actually truly understand what my sponsor wants. And and so to that end, uh, our, our lead war game designer, uh, Jer- Dr. Jeremy Sapinski, has a, a great list that we walk through that's like, hey, you know, which of these five outcomes do you want? Um, getting them to really, getting our sponsor to really nail that down and then come up with two or three objectives. It sounds like that should be simple, but that's honestly one of the biggest parts of the process because we're often operating on like six month timeframes for these projects. We'd like them to be longer, but that's just not often not the case. Um, it's it's really important in that initial kickoff that you're meeting with your sponsor, you're you're sharing information, and you're you're getting down to what they really think they need out of 
the war game because you can you can go off and start working and this has happened with with some of the stuff i've done and you come back and say okay you know it's been a couple weeks this is what i've said we're you know you what you told me you want this is what i'm planning to do and you get a lot of redirection because what the sponsor thought they wanted is not what they really wanted um and and so a lot of that that upfront work is making sure that that we have a shared language that our sponsor and uh the analysts working on the war game really do agree with each other that this is the direction we're moving uh, that's that's probably my biggest tweak to what gino said but there are, there are a couple other things I want to touch on. Playtesting is something we are trying to do more of. Um, playtesting for our games is not playtesting the way the commercial sector does it. It's, it's not potentially years of tweaking things. We've got a couple runs, runs through the game with our folks, and, and that's it because we just don't have the time. I mentioned like a six-month time window. And you, you know, I'm if if the game is happening in month four or five of that time window, I'm hoping I can play test in month three or four, uh, a couple times. And and it, there is some differences if if you're doing um, what we call game in the box, which is closer to a commercial style game. So instead of providing an event and a venue and all the players, you're providing a rule set and and all of that. You you generally try to try to and succeed in doing more play testing. Because your sponsor wants to play test that multiple times, so they understand the rules, so they can run it on their own potentially. But that's very different than these big one week events where we're getting like 60 or 70 people together. And it's a combination of seminar and map encounters and all of that. For something like that, if we can get two what I'll call play tests in, that we're doing really well just because it's it's so time intensive and so uh, such short timelines that we have to work so i think those are my only tweaks kind of on the margins to what gino said the, the first one being get that buy-in a lot earlier and that's very different than than a commercial game where it's you know hey i want to go i have this idea for a wonderful game that i think someone will buy no i'm i'm being paid to solve or not solve to address a specific problem and i need to make sure that i've scoped that appropriately and and if i do that well and i'm not saying we always do but if i do that well it actually makes the game design much simpler because i know the outcome that i'm shooting for and from there i can work backward and say that means i need to address these decisions which means i need to have these types of mechanics which means i need to have this type of information and it follows logically that doesn't mean it's always easy um, but i think that the, that's kind of the rough overview from where i see it uh given the last couple of years of work yeah so I, I think I speak for all Dragoons and the rest of our audience to say that if y'all want some help playtesting stuff, give us a holler. Uh, <laughs> we, we are more than, especially, you know, under pandemic circumstances when we don't necessarily have to be in D.C. with you guys. Uh, if y'all want to dial us into some of these Zoom calls to, to sit in and do some playtesting with you, we are more than happy to hang out and, uh, and, and, and help be a part of some gaming there. Uh, you know, we're, we're all gamers at heart, so why not game for a good cause there as well? Uh, on a serious note, though, when you guys are doing that kind of playtesting, is it necessarily uh, required that it sort of be all inside the wire there at CNA? Or do you bring in some outside folks just to have enough bodies to get through some of those playtests? So it, it depends on the project. I know you're probably tired of hearing that. Yeah, it's uh, reality, after... dude. I mean, that's just what yeah. it is. <laughs> um but but uh, if possible, we at least are involving other members of our of the gaming team, 
um, because not every member of the team is working on every project. Um, but if, if it's a game in the box, like I can think of a couple examples where, where we brought in outside people to play. And that actually um, was a good learning point because your playtesters, for specifically for a game in the box, should look like your target audience for the game. And unfortunately, CNA analysts often do not look like the target audience for the game <laughs> because we sit there and we overanalyze everything because that's our day job. And, and a lot of folks are going to jump in and just run with something. And, and so where possible, yeah, we want to bring in outside folks, but that's generally much more possible for those, those games in a box, right? Those, those, Hey, I produce a rule set and map encounters and I hand the box over to someone else. Um, we have at times brought our sponsors in to to play. You can't see me making air quotes, but to play um, in, in one of our play tests for for research games, these big big events as well. And that's just all dependent on their schedules. Um, but that's that's partially also to to continue that buy in process that I I discussed a little bit ago. That hey, if they see what's going on, they they are better postured to to provide feedback during execution and understand how the analysis on the back end might work. Ideally, it's something we do more than we do now. And that's, I think, where I, I'll, I'll leave it, that there's the ideal and then there's often the reality, especially right now during the pandemic, that it's, it's hard to bring people in from outside at times. Don't let that stop you from calling us, though. I, again, we, we are more than happy to. <laughs> so, and I also know the reality when, when you're saying it depends. One of the realities on which things depend is you guys do classified work for folks. I mean, there are times where where it is a secure environment and it is not for public mention, much less public release, that you're working on a classified project and you're just not allowed to talk about it. And OK, good. Like, I'm glad somebody's looking at those problems for us. So that's definitely true and, and is a challenge for playtesting as well as the dragoons proudly charge into their eighth season of mentioned in dispatches we'd like to pause and thank those patreon supporters who pledged at the regimental patron level so a heartfelt thanks to treb curry staggerwing patrick mullen mike quigley hepwell wargames patrick garrity Robert, Kevin Bertram, and Joseph Knoll for their support of the Armchair Dragoons and enabling us to bring you the best wargaming content we can. You, too, can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com armchairdragoons. In terms of some of the, the research, the tools, the techniques, the inspirations, um, you've mentioned a couple of different, the lit review clearly, like folks, anybody that's been in the academic world at all sort of understands that literature review, let's go find the state of the art of the current information and try and digest as much of that as we can. When you start looking at different kinds of game mechanics that you want to put in place, Right. We're moving, you know, blocks across a, a, a map. And, and look, I get the, the fascination of blocks because it's very easy to cut out stickers and slap them on a block to have something a little more substantial where printing and die cutting counters can be a pain. Um, but as you're starting to look at some of the different actual mechanics of the game, whether it's um, card assets, whether it's, um, you know, cards for randomization versus cards that have assets that allow you to do things. How often do dice show up? How much of it is sort of work 
transfer and resource allocation versus uh, straight up kinetic combat kinds of things? How do you model interpersonal influence as, as a, for instance, without diving into any specific game or giving away a specific client somewhere, are there any examples that you can think of uh, and, and putting you on the spot to like, think of these things as I'm talking here, but are there any examples that you can think of where a specific mechanic happens to be very well suited to modeling a specific type or kind of event. This mechanic works well for kinetic warfare, where this mechanic works better for interpersonal influence in a counterinsurgency or conflict prevention scenario, or this kind of of asset allocation works well for political campaigns, political influence sorts of things. Can can you give the audience some examples of some mechanics you've used uh, in, in to model particular kinds or types of events? Again, with the caveat of we don't want to get anybody in any kind of trouble by end up referencing a specific game or a specific scenario that we were looking at. Gino, is there something you can think of that, that we can give the audience here? I might actually kick this one to Justin because I'd be okay. very curious to hear what he says. Um, I have some <laughs> thoughts on this, but it's I have to formulate them a little bit. Sure. Uh, way to throw me under the bus, Gino. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, so kind of philosophically first, so that I can organize my thoughts. The right, the how do I come up with things in general? It's the the Feynman algorithm from physics. I write down the problem. I think really hard, and then I write down the solution. Um, that's really true though, but, uh, no, so so a couple, a couple examples that I can think of kind of off the top of my head. Um, there's a specific type of game, uh, that I think I'm actually pulling it up right now. Um, I I think is actually on the, um, uh, yeah, is on the CNA Wargaming site. Um, but, but it's called organizational troop to task war games. This is not your traditional war game. This is something where we're looking at. Um, kind of right-sizing a command. And so your resource allocation are actually the the people in your command and their time. And, and one of the things that works really well there is um, thinking of your people as cards that you can divide up into certain blocks of time and then placing them on a on a map that is really a calendar um, and, and indicating, you know, hey, they're busy doing this type of thing. And and that type of mechanic, it's, it seems really simple, but it uh, it allows the players to realize, that, hey, I have a limited set of subject matter experts on certain topics, and I have just placed all of their time down, and I still need to be able to use them because all the events come up as cards as well in, in a randomized deck. That that kind of um, frustration that you can see crossing the players' minds that I just don't have enough. And it's and I see I won't get them back for a long time because I've already allocated them is is really something that's really simple and really cool. Um, I think I'm thinking of another example, and I just I'm trying to figure out how to say this um, in one of the games I, I designed. So in the game, um, geography matters, but it only matters insofar as there are various threats. Uh, as you progress in your journey. And so instead of doing your traditional hex-based map, uh, what we did is we actually did something uh, similar to the video game FTL, if any of your listeners are familiar with it, where you you model, in, in FTL, it's a space game, you model the t- key terrain as you're, as you're running from someone in that game. It's this 
the game we designed is different, but it's, it's just literally a network, a graph. I'm going from point to point and I can never go backward, but as I continue on, things just continue to get, get worse. And so you, you abstract away the stuff that's unimportant, some, a lot of the terrain that a player may want to focus on to the detriment of your game by just representing key locations and everything else is just traveling between them. Um, and I think that worked particularly well for, for that type of thing. Um, so Gino, I've given you, I fully bought you enough time. I'm going to throw it back over to you here. <laughs> you did. I appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. Um, the one thing that I think is really interesting is obviously dice are widely used in both commercial and uh, professional games, even ours. Um, but a lot of times there can be a way to employ a sort of deck building in a way um, where you can stack cards to increase the ability of your primary card to actually uh, be successful. And the game um, in particular I'm thinking of is is uh, actually, you you had him on here to actually talk about that. Sebastian um, and his Littoral Commander game was an example of uh, that sort of uh, quasi-deck building where you can uh, select your cards or discard them based on uh, what you're trying to do in that turn. Mm -hmm. And that is an interesting... Uh, sort of mechanic in the sense that it's not a randomized deck like Justin was talking about where these events are randomly occurring, but it is sort of, um, you don't know what the opponent is going to do, and your deck is already made from the outset of the whole turn. Um, yeah. And that is something that I think is uh, sort of unique in the sense that um, a lot of games that I'm familiar with at least do not actually employ that, and I might be uh, ignorant to games that have that in the commercial space. So I, I think there's an interesting piece here now that I've had a chance to gather my thoughts um, kind of following up on this that again our audience is not necessarily war gamers or board gamers or hobby gamers yeah. and so we yeah. we always walk a fine line of introducing too much gamism and and losing buy-in from participants um, you know, it, uh, some of the examples that, that Gino and I just gave, like with the right audience work really well, but I'm thinking of games, professional games that I've participated in where we thought we had the cool mechanic that really brought the things to the forefront. And it was for someone who's used to playing a lot of games, Yeah. but our challenges, and, and this is why in the end, Gino's right, we end up using dice is there. Even even if you know I have a, a fairly senior DoD official who's not really a, a, a hobby gamer, they're familiar with die rolls and the like. They've seen enough. They they've probably played Risk once or twice, and yeah. so there's there's this balancing act that in professional gaming we tend to do and at times fail at, which is present things that are close enough to the real world that we don't lose buy-in from our players, but introduce the randomness that's inherent in, in any of the, the war scenarios we're looking at, or, or even in, as I mentioned, you know, the, the organizational troop to task game, the, the, the random events that come up that a command might have to handle giving enough gameism to represent that in a cool way that doesn't lose buy-in is always our challenge. And so that's where, again, times we're going to fail. That's why you want to do play tests. That's why you want outside outside people to come in and play. But in the end, at times, you're just going to fail, and it is really frustrating. Yeah. 
I, uh, I I imagine for the majority of your sponsors, the idea of wargaming shouldn't be all that weird or they wouldn't have knocked on your door for one in the first place. But I could absolutely see some of the mechanics and tools, particularly as the state of the art of hobby wargaming has evolved and you've been able to to borrow, right, air quotes, um, <laughs> liberally from the, the hobby wargaming world, that that's not necessarily something that that a lot of military practitioners are going to be aware of or, or have an understanding of, much less a familiarity with. And so I would expect there's a bit of a learning curve on their part just to understand how the game mechanics work. Oh, yeah. And and to, to go back to the previous conversation, again, where we you asked about playtesting and getting responses. If we can't do that, we're at least providing materials that, that kind of telescope, if you will, from the beginning of the project on that this is what your game's going to look like. This is, hey, here's a little more detail on how this part of the game might look. And and here's what it's going to get you on the back end. And and generally that works. But again, at times it's it's a hard balancing act because you are doing a little bit of kind of education on what Wargaming can do and can provide. But also, uh, yeah, sure, lots of people have ideas when they come to us and ask for a war game what it might look like. But but what they're thinking it might look like might not actually answer the question they want. You know, yeah. I, I, I don't need to use the D&D 5th edition rule set to explore some of these these uh, challenges. <laughs> but but there are people who, that's their, hey, they play hobby games outside of work too, and they'd love to see something like that. Well, you know, bounded accuracy is a thing in 5th edition. Uh, bounded accuracy may or may not be a thing in the real world, and we should we should uh, be clear there about those assumptions. Well, I think just to sort of add in to this is it's really interesting whenever you end up with a group of players who really don't like rolling dice. So what you end up needing is a human to essentially roll the dice for them, not literally, but in a sort of... Um, matrix adjudication where you have a big white cell or a single white cell and uh, they basically are the dice that have an authoritative either knowledge or documents to look at and they decide the outcome of whatever your action is so players there there's I've, I've run across players who hate rolling dice and yeah. as funny as that is because we all know that one the dice are informed by the information in the game so probability and you also choose your dice based on that probability in order to replicate it in a um, the game itself um, but sometimes you just have a very knowledgeable white cell that just spits out an answer and that's uh in in the reality that the game exists it's law yeah yeah it 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 does astound me sometimes folks that can understand well that's got a 70 percent chance of success but don't want to accept a pair of percentile dice deciding which side of that 70 percent line you fall on in this specific instance yep so i'll I'll tell a funny story because i i can um kind of to to foot stomp (laughs) that uh, one of the games in a box that, that uh, I built, there was your choices all along the way. There were some counters in the background hidden from the players that modified a, a couple dice rolls at the end of the game. And and we were very clear about how they were being modified. We were very clear, you know, throughout every play test, um, you know, hey, these actions, like, this literally gives you a plus two to this. Um, and And we got to the end and we rolled dice. And our players uniformly hated it, like our, our military players, because 
they felt like their choices didn't matter. There was always a chance they could fail. So after the play test that we ran for over a week or for around a week, and we got that feedback at the end of every game. So think like eight or nine games, which is a lot for us for play testing. This is an all day thing. Um, I went back and like completely discarded the die rolls. There, there were no dice being rolled at all. And it was all completely deterministic based on the choices you made, but the players had now had no knowledge of how their choices were informing that outcome. So think of this like a, like a computer RPG. You get to your ending slides and they're just there now. And, and we turned this new version over to the sponsor and they went and ran it on their own. And the feedback came back like, oh, this is so much improved. And I'm sitting there laughing <laughs> as, as the designer because I know the numbers under the hood. And the numbers under the hood is that with my changes, it's actually harder for you to win. And yeah. you're given less information. And, and the players loved it more specifically because they did not want to feel beholden to the dice at all. Yeah, huh. sort of, sort of like you understand how a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat, usually yeah. loses its magic. Yeah, that's uh, that that's interesting. That that a a a tweak that the audience accepts as increasing validity, uh, really, you know, it, it, mechanically the game is not all that diff different. You know, as you mentioned, the difficulty went up, but there was better buy-in on the part of the participants. That's that's interesting that something like that has happened. Um, it, this is a bit of an off the wall question i'm pretty sure i know the answer ahead of time but i don't suppose uh gino probably not for you because you haven't been there as long but justin in the time that you've been there or in the war stories you have heard from your cna colleagues just out of curiosity have you ever gotten lucky enough that you were able to to reuse much of or the bulk of a game from one sponsor to another have you ever stumbled into getting that lucky at some point um wholesale no <laughs> yeah but but partially sure I, I sebastian and i actually uh gave a talk to to some marine corps logisticians about a whole bunch of logistics games we at cna have run and you'd be surprised how many things i could beg borrow and steal from one game to add to the next um and and that's fun when you can do it uh it's also hilarious when you have players who've played in multiple of those games and they start going aha i know where this comes from <laughs> and i know what the outcome will be yeah. uh, but that's but, just efficiency know, in design right i that's mean that's right yep yeah. being efficient with your time so uh, another one that i'm pretty sure i know the answer to but i'm just kind of curious Obviously, when a sponsor comes to you and says, I need to a, a game on blah, like that's what you're working on. But particularly for some of those game in a box ideas, ha has it ever gotten to the point where one of these things was developed enough that somebody at CNA said, hey, we really ought to sell this thing? Have, have any of these things, obviously, you can't fully commercialize a sponsor product from CNA so, like that's that's never going to fly. But, you know, have, have they evolved into some commercial designs that anybody in the audience might know something about so the answer is somewhat mm -hmm. um there are some games that cna has designed that uh are sold through the government um we we have explored the idea of of publishing our own uh there are some challenges legal challenges with that that i don't want to bore your listeners with um but but it is something we continue to explore and would like to do more it's there are just some extra hurdles in the way. And so the, I can think of at least one example that uh, Peter Perla designed with uh, um, some other folks that is available for purchase through the government, for example. 
Okay. It, I'm looking to see if it's on Board Game Geek or not right now. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's got the Pratson game that just recently cleared its funding with Canvas Temple, but you guys aren't doing Austerlitz for CNA. Like that's no. the normal thing. So um the in in so that's some ideas that you guys have had some of those games are now available for other government clients to use if they want to to use them for the same or similar kinds of tasks that they were originally developed for. So if we're if we're training something or is a team building exercise of something and you built it for this particular Air Force base somewhere, another Air Force base could grab it and run with it. I'm, I'm being overly reductionistic, but I'm trying not to get anybody in trouble by, by yeah, being yeah. close to there. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. And, and we have produced in the past it's not going to be commercially available but but for the government like this is how you would run this type of event after we've run it a couple times like here's the background research you should do here's the key things to consider and that's that happens less than us designing one-off games but it does happen but again it's not it's not necessarily open to the public well and and don't know that anybody would expect it to be necessarily So, don't know how much fun our games would be to play at home. Like, unless you're really into um, this sort of analytical or even educational war game, they're definitely not a uh, sit down at your kitchen table and uh, have a beer with friends or whatever your beverage. You know, is. I'll tell you, like, so I, I've got 40 plus years in the wargaming world going back to being a kid growing up, like playing stuff with dad. And, and I am constantly astounded at things that I don't think would be commercially viable that managed to be somehow or another. I, yeah, it, it blows me when when hegemony from from Rand first sort of escaped into the wild. People started finding out about it. We're like, oh my god, two hundred fifty dollars? That's crazy expensive. Well, it wasn't ever designed, like you said, for you know Saturday afternoon gaming with you and a handful of friends and some beer and pretzels and the game in the background. Like nobody expected that out of that game. That two hundred fifty dollar price point was aimed primarily at institutions for for academic and professional development. And and by all accounts, it's great for that. I've never played it. I've just talked to a whole bunch of people that have. And 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 yet there were no shortage of hobby war gamers out there at the high cerebral end of the hobby that were like, man, you know, maybe we could pull together a copy of that at a convention sometime and take two days and figure it out out of the five-day convention that we're there. Let's get a couple hours of this in and see how it goes. And not that anybody necessarily wants the copy on their shelf, you know, like a trophy. Oh, there's a couple of those nut jobs out there too. Um, but... <laughs> But th this was clearly something that was not aimed at the hobby audience, and yet there's two to three dozen hobby guys that were shooting flares in the air saying, send it over here. I want to play with this thing just to see what it does. So so when you talk about, you know, I don't know that this would be all that appealing. No, you're not selling. It, it's not going to clear P500 at GMT, right? It's just not, yep. you know. Yep. But that doesn't mean there's not. A, a core audience of 30 to 50 to 80 to 100 out there that wouldn't be willing to at least get their hands on it one time and poke around at it and see how it works. Um, I, I've, I've consistently been surprised at how much of that people want to get into. So, you know. No, that's fair. That's uh, that, that's definitely something that, that, that I've always seen there. So. Ah. 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 
We're starting to, you know, drift into beyond the one hour mark, although by the time I edit out myself saying um a bunch of times, we'll, we'll get it back under the hour from, from when I'm saying this. But I, I've asked a bunch of directed questions towards you guys in, in terms of just sort of taking the gloves off here. Things that you've learned at CNA around wargaming as a whole, whether it's client specific, sponsor specific stuff, or just things that have made you a better game designer, inspirations and places that you've managed to learn some stuff just kind of as a as a free-for-all what has working at cna kind of been like for you as a gamer and and as a game designer Uh, the lessons you've learned going forward justin you've got a few more of those lessons learned we'll start with you and then roll it over to so uh well i mean i wouldn't be a war gamer if i didn't say no plan survives first contact with the enemy or or in this case with the players um it doesn't matter how well you plan. It doesn't matter how well you try to anticipate uh, everything that can happen. Uh, something's going to go wrong. Um, and you know what? That's the fun of it, but that's also the stress of it. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, more generally, I, I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that I need to be more and more precise with what war games can and can't do. Um, I, I think there's, you know, it's, it's great that we've had a renaissance of wargaming um, since Bob Works' memo uh, that, that gets often cited. Um, there's a lot of things that even a couple years ago I would have said, hey, a wargame can do that, that I'm a lot more cagey about. Um, and that's because it's, it's really easy in a game to enter that flow state and to be carried away and – and the insights you get there are great, and you're not going to get them through traditional analysis. You're not going to get them through running an exercise, but it's important to put those things in context. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's hard. Like the 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 biggest lesson. Uh, Peter Perla talks about the cycle of research, war games, exercises, um, and analysis, and you need all three to answer any problem. But it, it's amazing how easy it is to get focused in on, hey, I, I want the best mechanics and, and lose the larger picture that I'm here to help help my sponsor solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And that problem involves wargaming, yes. But I'm remiss if I don't point out that I'm not giving them the solution. I'm not giving them even a solution. I'm giving them a place to start digging for more information. And and being precise about that is something that I've definitely had to learn to do. But th- that the flip side of that is that carries over to running and designing war games is that intellectually, when I think I'm being clear, I often find out I've been the least clear I could possibly be. Like, <laughs> you know, this was, this was uh, so obvious to me and I thought I stated it. No, don't assume that your players – know what you're talking about, and even if they know what you're talking about, that they view things the same way. And so the building in various ways in your games to provide an implicit check that we're all still operating in the same environment is really important and something that I think I definitely underrated when I started doing this. Um, but I think those are the big things, right? Like the clarity, the the fact that things are going to go wrong and I have to be ready to flex and I never know enough but that's okay. That's why my players are there are the big, the big lessons for me. So the one thing that I've definitely come to realize during my time at CNA is um, as someone who, as I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, 
someone who comes to this job as a hobby gamer like Justin, like a lot of your listeners, obviously, and most of our team is the the the, the purpose of the game is fundamentally different. Um, as Justin mentioned, it's it, you're trying to solve problems. You're not trying through exploration, but it's almost as if well, it is is the war game itself is a method of digging up data and sort of finding where your problems lie. And in doing so, it, it is really an educational process, even if the game itself is analytical. And and for me, coming from someone who has not as much experience in this field, it, it's a foundational shift in the way that I view games. And it's really funny because the first week I was at CNA, my boss told me, he's like, you're a, you're a hobby gamer. You now have to learn how to be a CNA war gamer or a war gamer in a professional environment. And that was really a, a pivot moment where your perspective changes. And obviously, there's a whole community surrounding professional war games, uh, in, not just in the U.S., but the world. But it is a uh, unique perspective and one that takes a lot of practice and uh, a lot of learning to be frank. Um, it's definitely not as easy as setting up a game at home, but it is just as rewarding. Yeah. yeah. I think for a lot of hobby war gamers, they can very easily conceptualize the idea of a war game as a training tool, mm-hmm. right? This is an opportunity to, to practice the theory and the doctrine and the tactics that I've been learning and actually put them on a map and see them in action, moving folks around on a map with terrain and whatever. I, I think most of them understand the concept of a war game as like a course of analysis decision tool. Hey, let me play through a couple of these things and then evaluate them against each other which is exactly what the wargaming step of the military decision-making process tells you to do. Yep. I think in in some cases, the idea of a wargame as a rehearsal tool is absolutely valid and people are okay with that. I think the idea of a wargame as sort of a, a structured what-if exercise is, is you know, where that analytical wargame is, is significantly different than what a lot of the hobby world is used to. But I think it's, it, it's something that wouldn't take them that hard to grasp once exposed to it the problem of course is nobody knows how well any of that's going to actually make for a commercially viable war game in the hobby space because all of those what ifs that you guys are exploring are all very specific directed problems from the part of your sponsors and so if you're going to if you were going to take one of those analytical style what if approaches to a hobby wargame like what the heck would you use as your as your problem that you would be trying to solve like where would you even go with that you know that hegemony was the one that you know folks in the hobby space were familiar with in part because a couple of articles got written about it uh in the popular uh, as popular press right as popular as yep. the wargaming press can be <laughs> yep. the the non academic professional press you know but what what sort of what if scenario could you come up with that might even appeal to hobby gamers like you know d-day invades belgium instead of norman like what where would you go with something like that so i i've actually i I think you go a different direction with that okay um I, i think the what if scenarios that are analogous but of interest live in the sci-fi and fantasy realms first and foremost okay so so let's say you wanted to look at a a what if and let's use um let's use d-day as an example uh specifically how do i say this sorry i'm thinking of some examples that i'm translating (laughs) uh so so perhaps Patton's 
entirely fake army, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's an important part of setting up for D-Day. And you port that forward, you know, 10,000 years, and suddenly it's about uh, the Har Harkonnens invading Dune. And, and the Atreides actually kind of see it coming. So, so how do I ensure that invasion works correctly, given that I have all these different technologies that may be applicable in space? And then you do the what if that way. I think that's where the interest lies. Now, maybe that's just because I'm a nerd. <laughs> or, or, or you apply it to the, you know, hey, let's let's uh, let's look at the War of, of the Ring, right? Amazon's coming out with some with the, the show here. Uh, and, and hopefully they don't completely butcher the Silmarillion. Sorry, I have a strong feelings about this. But but explore that. And and the the another option is right. Look look at history. You you brought up D Day, but look at look at for example, um, I don't know the the Punic Wars. T tell me how different the employment of tanks may be compared to the employment of war elephants. Right? There are analogs. That, that you can take a lot of what we do and set it in a different time and place and avoid a lot of the classification issues. It just, you just have to squint hard to kind of, to kind of see it. And I, I'll throw it over to Gino to see if he has any further additions. I, I will interject here to say, look, we're, we're over an hour into a podcast about professional wargaming. The fact that you, you are now concerned about the fact you might sound like a nerd. Anybody still listening at this point, <laughs> it is right in that same nerd realm with you. So, right. I mean, that's just who we are. That's, that's, let's not hide it right this is who we are so so don't sweat it um you did mention the sci-fi world that that does bring to mind like the hammers the the slammer verse right hammer slammers david drake's um the the original short stories were based in large part on his experiences with the black horse in vietnam right he was he was he, he rode with the black horse he was he was in the 11th cab there and there are more than a few stories uh from the original short story collection that was the first hammer slammers book uh it wasn't a full novel because it was the collection of short stories that were all based on scenarios that he had seen when he was over there in the 60s with the uh with the 11th acr so it's it's you know that's a case where someone did take a real world event and make a sci-fi analog out of it so gino what you got I, I I agree with Justin. I think that the, if you go far enough back in history, you can still apply um, a lot of the same ideas that we employ at work um, and get away from sort of the uh, World War Two, World War One uh, games that have flooded the market at this point. But um, I'm, I'm thinking if you sort of did a like a counterinsurgency game that looks at uh, the the experience of the Romans in Europe or even um, in a in, really interesting game, to be honest, that just popped into my head, a sort of looking at the way that the Native Americans resisted uh, the westward push in the United States, or what eventually became the United States. And I think that if you if you look hard enough, sort of like what Justin said, if you squint hard enough, you can end up seeing where real world situations have analogs, obviously, throughout history, because history is doomed to repeat itself. Um, and I think that, that there is definitely a, a place where you could, in theory, use a lot of the same design aspects or mechanisms or um, methods of analysis that we use in our games to look throughout history, and it's obviously a little bit geared more towards historians or history geeks, but uh, on it, I think it could be a lot of fun to play. Yeah, we, we've talked in the past about sort of where where sci-fi and fantasy wargaming broke off from historical wargaming and is, is almost its own separate thread over in the hobby realm where the toy factor is much higher than 
in 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 the more broader commercial hobby realm than than uh, you know us war game nerds over here in the historical world that uh, Jim Ozarski has some particularly strong thoughts on that and we've we've covered that on some previous podcasts I suspect you're probably not wrong in that some of those projects you guys may have built for CNA could be recrafted as some completely made up fantasy sci-fi universe somewhere and and still be valid learning tools for analysis that that might be more commercially viable i just don't know that you'd ever get away with being able to do something like that but trust but me i've at see. least i've at least explored one example <laughs> and the easy answer was well you got to do it on your own time and you can't use anything you learned and i went well that's kind of going to be hard then (laughs) (laughs) which part was harder the finding your own time or the uh not using things you've learned Uh, honestly at this point it's the finding time With all of the stuff that we've talked about tonight, we've, we've covered a lot of ground in sort of exploring how how you need to respond to a sponsor specific needs and some of the perils and pitfalls of doing that and the ability to bring some hobby things into the into the world, into the professional gaming world, just to make it a better game or, or mechanically make it more useful for answering what the the sponsor is looking for in, in all of that time doing that. Is there a specific or particular success story that that you can talk about without, you know, giving away any secrets that shouldn't be? Is there a specific success story or some time where where you had an opportunity to do something for the sponsor and you just absolutely nailed it and the sponsor was happy and you were happy? You you got a good game, they got a good experience, and everybody went home just smiling the whole way back back to the office. It, Justin, do you have one of those war stories you can oh, share yeah. with? Oh yeah. Um, so, so a couple key things. One, it was the only thing I worked on for three months, which is not the norm, right? I've, I'm normally working multiple projects, but it was a, a thing where a sponsor said, you know, we don't know if this is doable or not. We, we have some funds that let us see if it's doable. And if it falls apart, um, well, we tried and yeah. we learned, um, and uh, it was just me and one other person working basically full time for three months. And then we'd pull in a couple subject matter experts and some some work CNA had done. And I remember that Friday before the playtest, my boss said, is this good enough to go? Like the Friday before the playtest <laughs> with the sponsor, because we were doing a playtest. And like the CNA analysts were just like tearing the game apart. And, and I was like, I, I mean, I think so, but, uh, and, and I showed up and the, the sponsor walked through. So I showed up on a Tuesday cause Monday was a holiday. So, and the sponsor said, yeah, we, we really don't know if this is going to work, but Hey, we got you people. And, uh, and it's over to you. And, and I remember walking in and, uh, like 30 minutes in watching both enlisted folks and officers playing the game. Like I asked a question and I don't think I, I got to talk for like an hour <laughs> and, and they're just arguing amongst themselves. And I was like, all right, this, this worked Uh long story short. This is the game I mentioned earlier. That was one of the games in the box that we built. And, and a couple months later, we hear that the sponsor ran it themselves. No help from us, which is honestly the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and, and they're like, we ran it for, for the commander 
here and uh we went two hours over and we had to like like his his uh his admin was coming in like no you, you sir you gotta get to your next meeting and he was like i just want to keep playing and, and like hmm. i remember being told that and just being like that is why i do this job it happens infrequently but when it happens man does it carry you for for like years yeah so yeah yeah, yeah. I can imagine. So now you've got to figure out how to commercialize that game in a box so the rest of us can get that experience of that general <laughs> officer not wanting to walk away from the table. So, Gino, have you been lucky enough to, to hit that, that sweet spot in the uh, in the time you've been there yet? I have. Um, there's one example I can think of off the top of my head. It's uh, I, w- I was um, helping support a game um, that was actually in person. Uh, and it was actually, I mentioned it already, it was the time that I ran into people that hated rolling dice. Um, but at the end of it, um, they were, they were very senior players, um, albeit not extremely senior, but they were senior and, uh, they sort of fought the scenario a little bit, which we all know don't fight the scenario, but people do anyways. Um, but at the end of it throughout after the first couple turns, uh, they sort of broke their shoes in, I guess you could say, and, uh, started having fun and sort of joking about it, but still maintaining, uh, some fidelity to the game. And, um, after the end of the game, uh, the, 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 the after the end of the uh, event, we uh, they, they sort of went radio silent, but it ended up um, them turning around and saying every single person at that table had actually told all of their bosses, you need to play this game. So they turned around and said, okay, we want to do this four more times. <laughs> wow. Yeah, which was pretty shocking because uh, the, the people I was on the team with and the person who was actually in charge of the project was like, I feel like it went well, but I don't know if they're going to call us back. And uh, it turned out they all loved it. They told their bosses to run it for them and uh, just moving up the ladder, I guess. But it was really funny to see and so really rewarding. It, it, it's, I'm going to foot stump that because I, I, have, I have one other quick story, you know. There are times where where you get that direct feedback, and that's great, you know, like, like Gino and I were just talking about. And then there are times that you see uh, someone fairly high up in the Department of Defense briefing Congress about something, and you recognize it came from your game. Yeah. And that is awesome. That is really, truly awesome. Your name may never come up. CNA never may never come up. But you know where they got that because you were there when they said it for the first time, and that is really worth it. Yeah, I imagine that's that's the ultimate end goal in the professional and practitioner realm, right? To know that the project you're working on legitimately made a difference somewhere in someone's decision making, whether it was a training event for guys deploying downrange or whether, you know, in a case like that, it, it was legitimately impacting a policy decision. I would think that's that's the ultimate high that you can get from working in that professional and practitioner yes, space. Absolutely. On, on that high note. Uh, we're going to call it a night here and Gino, Justin, absolutely appreciate you guys joining us. Uh, thank you very much for taking some time, especially you, Justin, having to, you know, work around a a young baby there at the house. Um, so, so thank you guys for, for spending an hour and some change here with the Dragoons and, uh, and joining us here on mentioning dispatches. Um, at at some point we're going to have to drag you guys out to origins and bring one of your games in a box with you. So we can, uh, we can set it up there at the war game HQ with the Dragoons at origins. And, and get a whole bunch of people around the table playing some stuff. Sounds great. Yeah. For absolutely great. no policy making role whatsoever. <laughs> right. Let's just have some fun and then go out for a beer afterwards. Sounds so. good to me. Great. Cool. Thanks so, for having us. Yeah. Gino, thank you very much. Justin, thank you very, very much. Audience. 
thank you very much for sticking with us through all of this. We really appreciate your time as uh, as season eight rolls on. Uh, I will tell you, we we have a handful of pretty cool episodes lined up with some folks. What we don't have in the spring, of course, we don't have the holiday sales. We don't have the Charlies. We don't have a bunch of the big tentpole events that we have in the fall, but we've got some pretty neat topics still lined up for the rest of the season. So we hope you stick with us and, uh, and, and come on through. We've got at least one more professional topic lined up coming later this season. Uh, we also have connections online coming up in the middle of April. It's going to be the week right after Easter. I don't have a calendar right in front of me, so I can't give you the numbers, but they're on our site. So go take a look at, at armchairdragoons.com. So if the professional and practitioner world is something you are interested in, connections online is, is going to be open for registration in the next few weeks. And folks will be able to come take a look at what we've got to offer there with three core days of events and a bunch of extended events on either side, some, some game workshops shops, some game development tools and ideas, an opportunity to run some games for the folks in the professional space to get a sense of what's available out there in the hobby world. Guys, drag some of CNA folks over to the uh, to Connections Online with you. So we'd, uh, we'd love to see you all there. And thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you again soon. And so long from mentioning dispatches. <laughs> <laughs>